Um, so we are going <clears> to <throat> look at some, this is eating your way through the Gospel of Luke. Are there a few folks who have Bibles, or are there ones we could have just in the room? It'd be helpful to have a few folks read some short things at, at periods. So you can do hand a few of those out. I have a, um, a handout here that I'll pass around to you. And I'm fully aware that you will stop listening as soon as you get this in your hands. <laughs> <laughs> why I'm doing it. I don't know why I'm laughing. I think <laughs> <laughs> Someone finally said it. So, <clears throat> yeah, so thank you for having me. More of these, more of these handouts. Probably more than me, but. So, yeah, I have known, I've known of Labrie since my time um, at Regent. I went to the Labrie uh, on Bowen Island for one visit on the day that the well broke and the well pump needed to be replaced, which involves, I think it was 233 feet of pulling, like a few at a time, and then this big pump and trying to manage. 500 feet, they called it the champagne well. Well, it was, it was muddy and mucky, and, uh, but it was a beautiful time. Um, a little bit about a little bit about me before we dive in. While you get your sheet, and you can ignore what I'm saying. Um, so yes, I went from Regent to work with uh, an organization called Arasha Canada. Arasha is a Christian uh, environmental organization. So our mission is to show God's love for all creation, to care for the earth as though the Creator was invested in it. What a what a novel thought. Um, and we've got a wide audience for that, and it's and it's good work. I'm still involved with them primarily in a partnership we have with Regent College, where I teach a course um, on food. Um, I also was was recently ordained a deacon, and so I've been appointed as a curate to the parish of Central Saanich, very close. Some of you are connected there. And I am a part of the Emmaus community in Victoria, which is a new monastic community. We live together by a rule of life, and I can tell you more about that uh, later if you like. So I think that's gotten us to where you've settled your eyes on the page a bit, and we're all feeling good. So why don't I, why don't I pray for us? Okay, let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks for the gift of life. Thank you for being alive to this world that you've made. Thank you for good food which nurtures and sustains us, and for conversation. Thank you for these friends of Labrie. We ask that you would guide and teach us as we open up your word. We pray you would make us faithful recipients of this good news. And God, we pray for the one who teaches, for you know his sins are many. May we see Jesus. Amen. Amen. <coughs> So I do teach a semester-long course, a graduate course on food and faith, and I've tried to not shoehorn too much of that into the next 50 minutes, but we will be kind of covering a lot. So um, let me give a few brief comments about the relationship between faith and food generally before we talk about Luke, okay? The first thing to say, uh, perhaps this is a surprising intersection, how do these relate at all? Um, and I think that is by and large because a lot of contemporary life has worked very hard to sort of shield our food system from view, right? Um, eating, is, eating is still a basic biological necessity, right? All creatures eat. You have to do that to live. But with any degree of wealth 
or access, you spend an increasingly small part of your time actually being bothered with it. Um, if you're of an older generation, you might say, yeah, and be thankful for that. <laughs> so um, average time a family spent preparing food in North America around 1900 was seven hours a day. Any guesses on what that went to in 1960? Three and a half, so it cut in half. Then 2,000, any guesses? Average family time to prepare your food for the day? Half an hour. Half an hour, exactly right. Wow. So think about that, right? The average family spends about as much time preparing their food as they do watching the Iron Chef, right? Or actually, I think that's an hour. Um, maybe chops, right? There's all these food shows. It's amazing. Um, and you might think about some of the dominant stories or metaphors that we, the culture tells about food. I work with students, and the main one they have is food is fuel, right? Your stomach growls, the little light on the dash comes on, pull into the filling station. You more or less pour the contents in until the tank is just too full, and you got to keep moving. And in the busy life of a student, I, I can see such is sort of fine as far as it goes. Um, but, 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 it doesn't go very far, right? Our, our bodies aren't machines. Um, food is not fuel. It does provide energy that we can burn in the form of calories, um, yes, but it's also our food is the basic building blocks by which our bodies regenerate themselves, right? The, the, the gas you put in your car doesn't become part of the dashboard, but the stuff we ate is going to become part of us. It's going to remake the cells in our body. We're not cold steel engines who drink an odd kind of fuel. We're living, breathing beings endowed by our creator with the capacity to taste, to touch, to think, to feel, to engage the world, not by a cold mechanical calculus, but through art, through beauty, through creativity. Put another way, what makes us human is not that we feed, right? Every creature feeds if it wants to exist. What makes us humans is that we feast. We have meals. And perhaps most particularly of all, we fast. There, no, other, no other creature does this in the same way. So what does it say about our humanity then when we've turned so much of our eating into a kind of inconvenience, a shide so, a, a skip the dishes, right? And those have their place. I'm not here to just sort of get grumpy. But I do want to say we're creatures made in God's image. And food is one of these unique things that helps, I think, help, helps us to tap into that. We are creatures made in God's image. Um, I'm also shocked to find out the vast majority of my students, when polled, come from families who don't eat meals together, right? This basic human part of our life, eating a meal, lovely to gather here, right? The table's been set. There's a tablecloth. There's candles, right? We try to get our children to treat each other something like other humans, <laughs> um, <laughs> We abide by manners, right? This is all part of what it means to be human. We eat meals together. It's right there in our language. The, the word companion comes from the Latin come with and pane, bread. Your companions are the people you break bread with. This is just basic to what it means to be human. So how, have it, how has it just it's disappeared from the, the kind of screen of much of our lives, right? And I'm not saying this in the sort of, um, my friend Josh Chestnut works at the Boston Library. He calls it the, um, the get off my lawn school of social analysis, right? Just being cranky. Um, it's not about that. It's about saying, is something about our humanness at stake in this relationship in our world today? 
So when we come to the Gospel of Luke, I think we, we start to see actually how we understand Jesus, his life, his ministry. So much of that is around a table. It is around food. Perhaps having our blinders on where we'd fail to see that means we're missing something. That's kind of the, the, the hypothesis that I'm sort of teasing out here, okay? Um, now, we live in a world vastly more complex than the world of Luke or Jesus. That's to be sure. Palestine in the first century is an agrarian world. It's shaped by common practices of agriculture. If we go back into the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, we also find stories that harken back to a kind of pre-agricultural past. And the Bible, I think, holds a mixed view about agriculture. It's good. It's a good thing to be able to cultivate the earth. And yet also, at the time of the Exodus, Egypt was the breadbasket. So the best agricultural empire was also synonymous with the land of slavery. So how is it that all of that wealth, all of, that, all of the goods of creation, somehow create this, this social inequality? That's a big question. Whole lecture on that if you were in the course, but we skip over. Um, and when God liberates the slaves out of Egypt and leads them into the desert, the very first thing that happens is not the giving of the law. It's not instructions for prayer. It's y'all are hungry. How are we going to feed you? It's manna. This is Exodus 16. God will provide the food and manna. This is my favorite part. Manna literally means what is it? Like God says, I will rain down bread from heaven. And the people go, what is that stuff? I mean, I've cooked for my kids and get the same thing. Um, <laughs> and they're told, I will rain down bread from heaven. And every day, go out, gather what you need according to those in your tents. So it's not an individual drive up to the service station, get your fill. No, no, we gather in communities. Our food system is a collective. Gather according to your needs. Don't store it up. Some of them try, it goes bad, this is the story, <laughs> and practice the Sabbath. This is the, this early moment in Israel's life where God says, we're going to feed you, and you're going to learn to follow my instructions for food. So that memory of liberation from slavery becomes central to Israel's self-identity. In Torah, they're prohibited from forcing their slaves to work on the Sabbath. Why? It says, because you remember what it was like to be slaves in Egypt. When they arrive in the promised land, they're told you cannot sell this land permanently. Why? The land belongs to God. You are tenants. So this experience of being not a people, of being not with a land, of being caught on the underside, informs the whole giving of the law. That entire human land relationship is mediated in the Torah via God's promise and the covenant. How are we to live well in the land? Faithfulness to Yahweh involves actual, actual policy, such as not cultivating the land in the seventh year. You can read in Leviticus 25 more about some of that. So, again, this is a whole lecture on Hebrew Bible backgrounds condensed into five minutes. But enough to say food and farming and land and agriculture, like that's the world of the Bible. It's always going on in the background. It's not the center of the story. Right? So one of the biggest caveats, I'm going to have to say a few times, I understand that there's massive themes that are important in our theology. I believe in justification by faith. I'm not here to talk about that. It's not as though that's not important to a reading of the gospel. I'm trying to say, if we put a kind of floodlight on Luke's gospel, 
what happens with meals and food, and how does that show us something new about the gospel? When we put that on the whole Bible, when we look at land, what does that maybe reveal to us? So the world today is not the agrarian one of the Bible. It's an, a world of industrial agriculture. Technology helps us to derive increasing harvests from the land. Um, some estimates we grow enough food to support a population of over 10 billion people. So we're not short on food, <clears throat> and yet we do have 850 million people who are food insecure. And we have about the same number, probably more now, who are overweight or obese. We speak of diseases of affluence or Western diseases, and a large percentage of those are related to food, the food that we eat and the impact it has on our bodies. So think about, yes, obedies, yes, diabetes, heart disease, vascular disease, asthma, hypertension, um, a lot of cancers, alcoholism, other forms of addiction, allergies. So our food system, as it currently is, is producing a lot of food, and that is a social good. But a lot of the people who most desperately need that food aren't well served by our current system of agriculture. This is lecture two. I'm giving you in another three or four minutes, okay? Um, and we have to look then at what's the ecological scorecard for agriculture with the loss of topsoil, with the overuse of water, with toxicity, with land changes, with loss of biodiversity. There's a lot of creatures that have to eat, not just the human ones. There's a whole network cluster of issues. The carbon footprint of our agricultural system, it's massive. So we grow a lot of food, and if you live here in beautiful British Columbia, you probably have access to it year-round. But you hopefully are starting to see, wow, yeah, to really work through food, that takes us into the political and the social and the economic and the environmental, the culture. How, how is it that different cultures have different practices around meals, around who you invite to meals? It's, it's a bit of tugging the sweater, and it's, it's everything, right? Central to our creaturely life, and the premise I'm working with is that all of our creaturely life matters to the gospel, that's kind of my, that's the big, write that in bold, all of our creaturely life matters to the gospel because the gospel is about redeeming and thus giving us back the fullness of our humanity. To live a fully human life, to be creatures made in God's image. And we have to have both parts of that. We are just creatures. We're land creatures. We don't even get our own day. We're made with all the other land creatures, even the creepy crawly ones, same day. Yet we're endowed with God's image. We're given a particular vocation within all of these other land creatures. So the gospel is a, is a giving back of that humanness to live a fully human life. Now, if we think it's just a rescue plan to get us out of a broken world, then yeah, food makes sense, it's fuel. Like you're just trying to get, get through till that point. But if we think the gospel is about the restoration of a broken world, including a lot of broken people inside of it, then I think the whole of our life matters. The whole, the gospel redeems, restores the fully human life. Okay, lecture three. No, that's enough introductory bits. So um, <clears throat> we're going to transition now to the gospel of Luke. If a few of you have Bibles handy, it would be great at a few points to, um, to read some things together. Um, this sheet here is one way of trying to show that food may be important to Luke's gospel. This isn't definitive. This wasn't written by God. Um, 
Even the ones, though I'll give you a warning, even the ones printed in the back of your Bibles, those weren't written by God either. I mean, this might be better. Um, no, but you know what I mean. This is, this is a useful tool. It's a floodlight. It's just what can we see when we start looking with specific sets of questions. So um, some good quotes at the top. Um, Robert Karras, who wrote a book that I stole his title. It's called Eating Your Way Through the Gospel of Luke. He says this, In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. We'll come around to that, I think. Uh, Jennifer Schrock, the odor of food wafts through every chapter. Mm -mm. And then Paul Minier, table fellowship, as interpreted by table talk, constituted the gospel. So we're going to look at some of these meals in Luke and see if if that is borne out. But first I want to give you a very brief assignment, thinking out loud, brainstorming. How would you... Think about this issue of meals and food in the New Testament. Um, What sort of themes, stories, encounters, concerns, not just the Gospels necessarily, but what just immediately comes up to mind? I want to give you an assignment to do this with someone next to you for two minutes. Okay? What comes right out as you start, as I've just fleshed a few things out? What's coming up in your mind? Okay? Go. (laughs) Yeah, scripture. Yeah, from the New Testament. Okay, 30 more seconds. Make sure you both share. Okay. Well done, well done. So I, I'm hoping even even a passing familiarity with with the life of Jesus, with some of what may be happening in the New Testament, you start to see, oh, there's there's some there there, right? And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna let it sit. I know there's some questions that have emerged, but let's let's see as we travel through, and then in our discussion, what what more flushes out of that. Um, let me say a little bit quickly about Luke as a whole. Um, if you look at the sheets here, um, you'll you'll note similar to um, to Mark, to a number of the Gospels, but especially Luke and Mark, you you find a kind of big pattern 
the first almost half um, sort of Jesus' life and ministry. And then there's this sort of turning point where Jesus sets his faith towards Jerusalem. So in Luke, that's nine, chapter 9, verse 51. And everything that sort of happens from then on, if you've read the whole of the story, you can't help but read it in light of that. What, what's going to happen in Jerusalem? What are the events that lead to Jesus' death, to the events that we now remember in Holy Week? Um, round about chapter 18 or 19, he does arrive in Jerusalem, and then we have his account of the final days, um, and then resurrection appearances. The meals are seen throughout, so you see I've highlighted those in the red. Um, there's different ways of numbering these. Scholars love to disagree about that sort of thing. Um, but important, I think, to realize the meals are seen throughout. So it's not like Jesus, okay, I've got to build a movement, so I'm going to have a few Tupperware dinners. Did anyone have Tupperware dinners? Right? You invite all your friends. You said this is going to be some lovely food. And it turns out we're going to have some toxic plastic food storage for you to buy at the end. Um, no, I'm, I'm hard. I grew up on that stuff, and I'm still here. I'm still here. Um, but the, the point is that the friends get the product, right? Buy, buy, buy some Jesus Tupperware. Um, but we get three major meals in the first nine chapters. We get three more major meals in that period between Jesus set his face to Jerusalem and Jesus hangs on a cross. And then we get at least one and probably two major important meals after the resurrection. So this happens through the whole story. It's not, it's not like it's a means to some other end. It's, it's just part, it's woven in to the kind of warp and weft of the story. Um, John Koenig points out that six of the meals occur while Jesus is going to or from Jerusalem. Quote, a fact suggesting Luke understands them to be vital features of the Lord's itinerant mission. This view is confirmed in the last meal story when the risen Jesus announces to his followers, thus it is written, the Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Repentance and forgiveness of sins be proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem and you are witnesses. That's in Luke 24. Koenig concludes, in Luke's gospel, only here at the table is the missionary charge delivered. Very interesting. In the context of the final meal, this sort of mission is announced. Um... So in the interest of time, I can't, I can't possibly look at all of this. Um, what I'm going to try and do is dig into the introductory sections, sort of skip a few of the meals, um, and try and see if we can get to the Emmaus Road before my time runs out. So we'll see how that goes, okay? Um, and do, do keep questions. Um, if you have a way to take notes or whatever, I'm, I'm very happy to engage more on any of this. So at the start of... Um, at the start of the Gospel of Luke, we get an interesting account of two very important mothers, Elizabeth and Mary. Right? Elizabeth is um, married to a priest, Zechariah. They are righteous and blameless in the sight of God, observing all the commandments. And they are childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they are now very old. If you've read the Bible, you might hear a pattern, right? Holy and righteous couple, they're blameless but they're very old, and they can't have a child. That's Elizabeth. So, but what happens with Mary? Well, she's not old. I mean, by some accounts, she, she might, like, hardly a teenager. Um, blameless? Well, I've met some preteens. Um, I don't know. Maybe. Um, the, the tradition treats her as a saint, and rightly we should. Um, but the human Mary is is kind of the countertype to the biblical matriarchs, right? Most startlingly, we don't have any indication that she wanted a child at all. 
not in the text. We could, we could try to infer that. So something new is happening. Um, and yet when, when the angel comes, God's messenger comes and says, you're going to have a child. I know this is news to you. <laughs> um, she responds with this unbelievable, uh, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Her sort of yes, her amen. I mean, it, it opens up much of the rest of the story. This is, this is why um, our, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters make so much of Mary, because her yes opens so much of what we're going to now see. And she launches into her song, giving thanks to God, and that's Luke 1, 46 to 56. Does anyone have a Bible that can quickly read that song for us? What's that again? Uh, Luke 1, 46 to 56. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Great. So, um, a couple of things to note. Um, first, we note the, uh, the concern for the lifting up of the lonely, the bringing down of the mighty. We also later get language around filling the hungry, right? You will fill the hungry with good things. You, God, have filled the hungry with good things. Um, we also get this interesting um, link to all of Israel's past, right? Um, Mary sees herself as part of a larger, longer story. This is in demonstration of God's faithfulness to Abraham. That's what this is living in light of. That's a story that's big enough for Mary to live in and big enough for Jesus too as well. So <clears throat> if, you, if you were part of a church tradition that works with the liturgical calendar, we're going to come to Advent soon. And we'll get to spend some time, not, not very long from now, looking at Mary's song and her response. And just spend some time reflecting on what would it be like to grow up with a mom who sang that song, right? I mean, this is no mean lullaby. But this is Jesus' mother singing this song. How does this inform Jesus' whole self-understanding in his ministry? There's lots there. So chapter 2 uh, launches us into accounts of Jesus' birth. Lots of detail there. The one I would draw your attention to, because we're talking about food. Jesus is born and laid in what? A manger, which is a food trough. Right? Um, it's mentioned three times. Uh, verse 7, verse 12, verse 16. That's a little bit of an emphasis. Um, he has been laid in a, in a manger. He's, uh, he's born in Bethlehem. It's not his hometown. Um, and we have this central image of Jesus as food. Um, again, medieval art and the Roman Catholic tradition pick this image up much better than Protestants because it's an image, right? Jesus is food in a, in a, in a trough. Um, it's, but it's a cute baby and I'm sure it was beautiful. Well, <laughs> It's, it's potent, right, as an analogy, as a metaphor. Um, they then take their sacrifice to the temple uh, in, in 2 verse 24 uh, of two turtle doves. Um, this is the sacrifice that would have been given by, by the poor. Um, Jesus is in a poor family. There's much more to say about that. Chapter 3 fast forwards us into the ministry of John the Baptist. Now who has, um, if you've got a Bible again, Luke 3, and let's do verses 3 to 9. John the Baptist. 
and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you're, you think your preacher's bad. I mean, this is rough. So, you know, this is not a message about living your best life now. Um, so John preaches repentance. Uh, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The crowd says, all right, I mean, mate, you're being a little difficult. Like, what? <laughs> tell us what to do about all this. Um, and the answer in verse 10, 11, well, if you have two shirts, give one to someone who needs it. And if you have food, share it. All right, well, that's, I mean, surely there's more, there's more to that. Um, sharing food is an act of repentance in, in, the, in the mind of John the Baptist. Um, there's something under this I, that is hard for us i think in the in the modern world but in the ancient world greed the problem with greed was that it was a form of theft right mm. greed isn't it's not actually about you at all it's about the person who should have had access to those things that you're storing up for yourself there's a wonderful little bit in saint basil writing uh somewhere around 370 um on luke 12 we're getting ahead of ourselves but uh there's a whole story. Jesus tells a story about a rich man who has uh, a big harvest and he has barns, but they're not big enough. So he says, I'm going to tear down these barns and build bigger ones. You may know this story, right? It doesn't end well for the rich man. Um, Basil comments on that story and he says, did he not know, this is the rich man who's going to build his barns. Did he not know God had already provided bigger barns in the bellies of the poor? You don't need bigger barns for yourself. The surplus is for, is for all. It's for the community. So this amassing up of wealth of just me and mine for my, is, it's, it's, a, it's a form of theft. And this was regarded really well through um, until, until, until the modern era, basically. And we've had some adjustment on that. Same thing with uh, charging interest. Charging interest was also considered a form of theft. Um, very interesting work on this that you could get into. Uh, the Catholics have a social teaching called the Doctrine of the Universal Destination of Goods. It basically means all of the good stuff that's in creation is intended to su supply the needs of all the good stuff in creation. <laughs> so for one of us to, to cap a bunch of it over here, um, there's an issue of justice there. And again, I, to me, this harkens right back to this Exodus 16 that we gather only what we need. We ensure that all of those in our, our community have what is needed. Okay, so John the Baptist, uh, chapter 4, we move into Jesus' temptation, his time of testing, and he's fasting. 
And the very first temptation in this time of fasting for 40 days is to do what? Anybody know? Turn the stone into bread. Well, this is the first temptation. Take this food. Eat this juicy looking fruit. No, now it's turn the stone into bread. Um, now we can think about how might Jesus' mission have been subverted if he did. Um, Jesus' reply is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man should not live by bread alone. You probably know that. But the whole chapter, Deuteronomy 8, and again, if we had time, I, that's another one. Write that down. Spend some time in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's, it's stunning. And here's how it continues after that quote Jesus gives. It says, he humbled you, God. Speaking now to Israel, God humbled you, causing you to hunger and fed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you. That man does not live by bread alone. And then what it goes on to say is you're now going to come into the land. Deuteronomy is kind of given to the people before they go into the land of promise. When you come into the land and you eat and you have your fill and you build a big house and you settle down and you have everything you need, when everything around you is provided, don't forget it was God who provided your food. Remember the wilderness. So this Exodus experience, it's not just, well, that was cute, that happened. No, somehow that's supposed to stay with us, whether we're in a time of wealth or a time of scarcity. So interesting that Jesus invokes that chapter in his own encounter with temptation, right? Um, Second half of chapter four, we get Jesus' first public reading of scripture. This is sometimes called the manifesto, but I don't feel radical enough to call it that myself. Um, So a few things to notice, he opens the scroll, he's handed the scroll, the Old Testament scroll to read, um, pops it open. Some of us get to do this on Sundays, depending on if we're a part of a church tradition. Um, And he opens to Isaiah 61. Now, who has Luke 4? You can just read verses 18 and 19 from Luke 4, if you have that. Yes, which one? Hey, I just want to say, I think I can make miracle. Oh. I cannot turn rock into bread, but I can turn bread into rock. That's good. <laughs> That's good. I'll read that. All right. <laughs> the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. And I think that's it. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Great. So, he rolls that up, sets it down, says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the people look around and go, what are you talking about? This guy, this, I mean, this guy is this guy is off his rocks here. Um, so a few recipients of the good news. Four social groups are listed. The poor, the prisoners, or those captive, the blind, and the oppressed. We will see, we will see that emerge again. Um, and he invokes the year of the Lord's favor, a reference to the Jubilee year. Um, again, this is part of the tradition of the law where the land was not sold permanently because... The land itself was God's and everyone had a right to it. So every sort of second generation, every 50 years, if you had fallen into slavery or debt, 
you would get a chance to return back to the land that God had given to your ancestors. This was a way of setting, it's, it's not utopianism or idealism, but it's a way of saying we have to have some boundary <laughs> to the human propensity to just tilt things all in one direction. And it, it would be a really good idea right about now. Um, so, but interestingly, Isaiah 61, that verse, here's how it continues. It says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus stops, puts it down. But where the verse goes is, and the day of vengeance for our God. Jesus curiously omits the juicy bits about God's vengeance on the other nations. And he does this elsewhere. Again, if we had more time or bring it up in the questions, it's very interesting. So this gets us to the end of Luke 4. And I hope you see already, wow, yeah, food <laughs> food and meals and how we relate to creation, that's not just a side issue. That's part of how this story is unfolding. And it's central to what Jesus is going to go on and teach about the kingdom of God. So, um, I'm going to skip a bit looking at my time where I'm supposed to be. So, three meals Jesus has with Pharisees. The first is in chapter 7. Jesus has a, is, has a meal at the house of Simon the Pharisee. This is a, a story where he is anointed um, with very expensive perfume by a very interesting woman, shall we say, in mixed company. Um, and Jesus teaches. Then in uh, chapter 11, Jesus has a noonday meal at the home of a Pharisee. His disciples are scolded for not washing their hands. Um, and then Jesus scolds the Pharisees for not washing their hearts. <laughs> it's very interesting. And then the third, Jesus eats a Sabbath meal at a Pharisee's house and teaches about who you invite to dinner. Jesus, it, I just have to say, he's not a very good house guest in all of these. I mean, not if you're a Pharisee, and perhaps we'll see why. So let me pick up those as a kind of, as a kind of block, at least the first two. Jesus' engagement with Pharisees over meals. Okay, So Luke chapter 7. We're about halfway through. John's disciples come and they say, this Jesus, is he the one who is to come or not? Like, who is this guy anyway? We have this hunch. This might be the Messiah. We're not really sure. Jesus replies, go and tell John what you have seen. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news brought to them. Do you notice a theme? <laughs> and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. So, familiar words already from just Luke 4. We fast-forwarded to chapter 7. My summary of that, of Jesus' answer is, it's, it's game time. Like, am I the one who's to come? Yeah, that, this, this is happening. Um, and then it says, uh, in verse 33, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. But the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners but wisdom is vindicated by her children. So Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, this is not necessarily meant as a compliment. Um, that reference to a glutton and a drunkard comes to us from, again, from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy chapter 21. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey the father and mother and will not listen to them, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate. And they shall say, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear and be afraid. Hmm. 
So clearly this is a serious charge. It's not just a, a, a slur or a wise crack. Um, Jesus didn't end up on a cross for telling people to be nice. There's, there's something more uh, under this. Um, so some people already in chapter 7, a rumor's floating around. Jesus is already seen as something of a threat. And, and what you need to do with a threat is to sort of purge it from your midst, right? And the Pharisees seem to be implied at least aligned with that group that's not sure about Jesus, this threat. Um, so they come to, we come to uh, verses 36 and following, the dinner at the Pharisees. This is the second uh, meal in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is invited as a guest, probably after uh, a synagogue service. That's what many commentators think. Um, you know, lots of people go out to lunch after church. Same thing happening there. An uninvited guest can show up, although Kenneth Bailey, who's a scholar who spent a lot of time in the Near East, says the story tells us very clearly Jesus did not receive the sort of hospitality that might be expected, meaning his feet were not washed when he arrived. So the host of this meal has not performed the basic hospitality that might have been expected. Um, Simon neglected to show Jesus that basic treatment, with which Kenneth Bailey argues is a great omission. Um, and who shows up to provide that hospitality? But this woman who was a prostitute is said to be a prostitute, a, a sinner. And interesting that she's the one who does what Simon doesn't. Um, so just on a on a basic level, a question, I think, that sinners are welcoming of Jesus, and yet the Pharisees are not, right? The, the highly church folks are not so sure what to make of this guy's ministry and life, and yet those who are clearly demarcated sinners are drawn to him. And I just think that I treat that as a basic, my reading of the Gospels, we could argue that out perhaps a bit if, you, if you'd like to. Um, so washing feet was a normal role, uh, certainly for women, often the wife of the host, so Simon's wife or, a, or a, a woman slave. Women are always the ones who wash the feet in the New Testament. I'm apologizing for that, but it's the ancient world. It's part of the reality, um, with, of course, one exception, which is in uh, John 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. John doesn't give us an account of Jesus' last supper. Where that little account should happen, what we have actually is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So when we come to talk about the Last Supper, think of that in, in a kind of parallel. Um, now the Pharisee, the host, is quite upset by Jesus accepting this treatment. It's offensive to have this very intimate uh, thing happen by, by a prostitute. And Jesus t then goes on to give a little parable. Um, the the, the, the punchline of which really is that... Um, those who have been forgiven much love much. That love love is the proof of our receiving grace and forgiveness. And so this this woman's devotion uh, is evidence of her having been forgiven. Um, so it, love follows a, a forgiveness. Um, we might say behaving follows belonging. This is in marked contrast, I think, to what Jesus seems to be critiquing, and we'll come to this more with the Pharisees, where what you need to do is get your stuff in line, and then you can have an encounter with the living God. Jesus seems to be turning that on its head again and again. So that's our first meal with Pharisees. The second, we move into Luke 11. We're skipping over lots, I realize, in those chapters. Um, Luke 11, verse 3, begins with uh, part of the Lord's Prayer. 
You might have thought of this when I asked you a question about food. Give us today our daily bread. This is, uh, this is a normative prayer for those who would follow Jesus. When we say, how would you like us to pray? This is part of that package. And it again, an echo of daily bread, manna in the wilderness. Not just a neat thing for once upon a time, but actually uh, still normative for us. Then he tells a little story about prayer. Um, saying this, suppose one of you has a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine has arrived and I have nothing to set before him. This ultimately leads to um, some of my favorite images of scripture about asking and seeking and knocking, that we should be persistent in prayer. Um, And we move then in the last half of chapter 11 to the Pharisees' dinner with Jesus. This is a fourth meal. Again, the structure follows something of uh, of a Greek symposium, although in a Greek symposium there would be a lot of um, wine and explicit <laughs> things happening that don't happen in the Pharisee meals. Jesus is a guest and reclining. Jesus and his disciples do not wash before the meal. And that's, I mean, that is about hygiene, um, but it's more about uh, ritual cleanliness. You know, being uh, being defiled, principally through contact with with Gentiles, with people who are not part of our tribe, with so-called sinners. And Jesus launches into this powerful series of of woes. Um, at the end of that, um, so this is eleven verses thirty-seven to forty-four. Does someone want to read that for us? Who hasn't? Anybody got that in front of them? Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, excuse me, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you, Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he make, did not he make, sorry, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that with which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these thing, these are all the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs. And the people who walk over them are unaware of it. The gospel of Christ. <laughs> so not a good, uh, not a good person to invite to your dinner. Um, <clears throat> and at the very end of that, we read this: When he went outside, the scribes and Pharisees began to be hostile towards him and to cross-examine him. Well, uh, um, yes, but interesting. You get just a little bit of a of a of a sort of flavor, huh? 
and the food puns will continue, um, of Jesus' Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees are the folks who are keeping the law. They're focused on how do we keep ourselves ritually clean and undefiled before God so we can live faithfully in light of God's law. That's not a bad motivation. The problem is we're we're pretty sneaky. (laughs) We're pretty self-deceptive. And so I can look really good. I can look like a very honorable person, and yet there's this interior life. Jesus continually flips this. It's not the outside of the cup. That's the easy part to clean. Good luck cleaning the inside of the cup. Um, And on and on it goes. Um, The final meal with the Pharisees is Luke 14. I'm going to speak about that in a a bit towards the end because it's situated in this whole section that's looking at this image of a banquet. Uh, which becomes very important. Um, I guess just one more thing about this interaction with the Pharisees. There is an interesting thing that I think we can observe. in The, the, the kind of wisdom of the Pharisees is that if you, if you have something clean or someone clean, when you come into contact with something that's unclean, you become unclean. I mean, that seems quite obvious. And so the purity codes, these elaborate ways of keeping ourselves clean... And that's about being able to go into the temple, being able to participate in sort of religious life at the time. There's a whole story around how that works. But a curious thing is the opposite seems to be the case with Jesus. Jesus, when anything unclean becomes into contact with Jesus, they become clean, right? Like again and again. Um, People who are clearly on the side of the unclean come and and contact Jesus, sometimes on purpose, sometimes in a very sneaky way, sometimes with very mixed motives. And in light of all of that, um, they become clean. The the purity code is held, I think, in contrast to an encounter with Jesus. Something something big is is happening there, is being contrasted there, and and we'll come around to that. But part of what it means is that socially, the community that's forming around Jesus is a group that is fundamentally open to outsiders, to those who are not supposed to be the in-group. Um, I think we've we've probably messed this up as Jesus followers in many ways, but but contact and communion with Jesus is is open. There's not a purity violation that keeps you off of that, and we could talk some more about that. Um, Paul is able to say later in in one of his letters, there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. Well, that's that's almost an impossible thing for Paul to say as a a lifelong uh, teacher of of Judaism. There's no longer Jew or Greek. I mean, the, the way that we know who we are is we're not as those filthy Greeks. We keep ourselves on this side. Somehow in this encounter with Christ, that has been subverted. Let me do one, uh, at least one or two more. We'll do the feeding of the 5,000, Luke chapter 9. Um, Again, the context of this is fascinating. Um, This is is one that's probably familiar, no matter your experience or engagement in in church. Um, You know, you probably saw it on a billboard, Jesus handing out loaves and fish. Um, But just again, a little bit about the literary context, the start of Chapter 9, verses 3, Jesus is sending out the 12. They're going to go out. And what are they not allowed to bring with them when they go out? Food, (laughs) among other things. Don't take a, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. 
Um, this is utter reliance on, on hospitality um, and on God's uh, mysterious provision. Um, then we get this actual encounter, verse 10 and following, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and just before that, in verses 7 to 9, we have this interesting place where Herod is asking about who this Jesus is. Um, so Jesus sends out the 12 with no food. Herod comes and asks, who, who is this Jesus? Jesus then feeds the 5,000. And then in verses 18 to 20, um, Jesus asks his disciples, okay, who do the crowd say? And who do you say that I am? And Peter answers then famously, you're the Messiah, right? So at a literary level, the framing of this story, this is about, well, who is like the identity of Jesus and this mission? And in the very middle of that is the feeding of the 5,000, right? So something about that, this encounter with food is at least framed in terms of the revealing of the identity of this man, Jesus, who also happens to be the long-awaited Messiah. It's also just before, as I said earlier, verse 51, when he sets his face to Jerusalem. So it's right before this sort of turning point in the whole arc of Luke's gospel. So who could read, uh, we'll do verses 10 to 17 of Luke chapter 9, please. I can read that. Great. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began, to sp he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Now the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside, and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down to eat in groups of about fifty each. They did so, and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven he blessed them, and broke them, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, twelve baskets full. Thank you. So again, <clears throat> no concern for washing hands, <laughs> right? Um, no concern about who, who's going to eat with whom, right? Um, there's no hint of this meal being determined by sort of social position or uh, rank or class or anything like that. Um, and I love that in the end, they, it says they all ate and were satisfied. So there was, there was an abundance. Um, and, and similar to this old story of manna in the desert, it looks like very little. Right? If you remember the manna story in Exodus, it's, like a, it's a thin coat. It's almost a powder. You have to go and collect it, right? Well, here it's five loaves and two fish. It's a big crowd. But then there's leftovers, right? And there's 12 basketfuls of leftovers. This is just a lot going on here. There's, we just had 12 disciples going out with no food. And now we have a community around Jesus with 12 basketfuls of leftovers. But we started with very little. 
but now all are satisfied. So remember Mary's song, right? You have filled the hungry with good things. There is this, this movement, this almost reversal. And it's not just Jesus' followers. It's not the super-duper cool, pious, religious ones. It's the hungry crowd. The disciples say, we can't be bothered with this, Jesus. Like, send these people to Timmy's. And it's, no, no, no. You know what to do. You give them something to eat. And it's not bread dropped down from heaven. The, the mystery here for us is the bread that was already in their midst. In, in John's gospel, we read it's, it's the bread that was a little boy who had carried. It's almost like the little boy with his lunchbox. And Jesus says, hungry? That'll do. We can work with that. Um, you may have heard this familiar refrain, Jesus takes, blesses, breaks, right? Distributes. So already we have hearkening to what we think of as communion or Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, however you might call that. Um, a number of the commentators I've read on this say that all of these meals uh, hearken to, to that in one way or another. They're not all, quote, Eucharistic meals, and yet they certainly are <laughs> Eucharistic meals. Um, the, the, and it's not, I want to just say again, I, I want us to try and find a way of seeing this isn't like Jesus needed an object lesson and reached around for one. Um, it's not like the real thing is the spiritual thing, and this just helps us to kind of understand it. Think more in terms of a sacrament. A sacrament is the meal. It does point to something beyond itself, right? The, the, what happens in this meal is about God communing with us. Um, yet that meal, the thing, makes that reality present. So it both is pointing beyond itself, but it also is somehow transcending and including that there. Um, and I think this is what is happening in Luke's meals in different ways. The kingdom of God is here in these meals. It's not contained in them. It's beyond them. And yet something happens in these meals when bread is broken and shared. God has committed to be present. Now that is the case all the way through Luke's gospel it's the case, too. I'm not going to do this part, but if you look through the book of Acts, that's where it starts. The disciples hold everything in common. They share bread. They remember. So it, in some mysterious way, it is the case for what we just did in the other room. God is committed to be present when we break bread and remember in this, in this sort of way. More that we could say about that. Um, it kind of continues with the sending out of the 72. So again, this whole, the framing of the mission, the kingdom, and the, and the filling, the filling of those who hunger is, is central. Um, okay, I have, this is going to be a little more fun now. If you've been bored, wake up. Um, <laughs> this is now, I'm going to skip over. This is my favorite, my favorite parable, um, which is about the, the yeast or the leaven. So I want to read to you before we jump back in, because it is in Luke. I want to read a little bit from my, one of my favorite writers, Robert Ferrar Capon, now of blessed memory, he died a few years ago, some of his brief reflections on this little parable. So let me read you the parable. It's very short. And again, Jesus said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. I mean, that's, thus endeth the reading. That's the image, right? So here's Capon on this. It's, 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 it's a woman. It's a baker. He says this, this may have been stereotypically female work she's pictured as doing, but make no mistake, she does it with more than stereotypical male energy. 
This is no slip of a girl making a few tiny loaves for her husband's pleasure. This is a baker. Three measures is a bushelful of flour. 128 cups. That's 16 five-pound bags. And when you get done putting in the 42 cups of water needed to make it come together, you've got a little over 100 pounds of dough on your hands. That's the image, right? <laughs> the yeast and the dough. Which leads me, as long as we're at the end of the parable, to exegete it backwards. Take the whole first until all of it, the whole of it. When Jesus says the whole is leavened, he's not kidding. The lump stands for the whole world. This is not some elite ball of brioche made out of fancy flour by special handling. And it's not some hyper good for you chunk of spiritual fad bread full of soy flour, wheat germ, and pure thoughts. <laughs> this is plain unbaked bread dough. And Jesus postulates enough of it to make it even handle like the plain old world it represents. That is, not easily. The hiding of yeast in a batch of dough is both more mysterious and more pervasive than any of the hidings Jesus has so, so far used to illustrate his kingdom. Seeds may disappear into the ground, but if you're willing to take the trouble to hunt and peck for them, you may conceivably find and pick them back up. But yeast, no way on either account. For the yeast enters into the dough by being dissolved into the very liquid that makes the dough become dough at all. And just as the yeast, once it is in the dough, is so intimate a part of the lump as to be indistinguishable from it, undiscoverable in it, and irretrievable out of it, so it is with God's kingdom in this world. And he goes on and says this, So we come at last to the response, to our response. What is the only response you could possibly offer to yeast in the dough? Well, patience for one, and possibly discernment. To be able to recognize when it, not you, please note, has done its job. Maybe a bit of vigilance to make sure the impatient types don't talk you into despairing of the lump before its time comes. No matter what you do, the yeast works anyway. At the most, your response advances your own satisfaction, not its success. And even your negative responses, even your resistance to the kingdom, we might say, interferes only with your convenience, not with its working. Indeed, using the imagery of bread, it may even help. For unless the dough is kneaded thoroughly, unless it resists and fights against the baker enough to develop gluten and form effective barriers to the yeast working, then the gases produced by that yeast will not be trapped in cells to lighten the lump into a loaf. So who knows, maybe even our foot dragging and backsliding, maybe even the gummy intractable mass of our sins is just all in a day's leavening to the word who is the yeast who lightens all our lumpishness. <laughs> so that's Robert for our capon. It just preaches right off the page. It's beautiful. So um, <clears throat> we're coming up on our time. Let me see if we do um, if we do just one or two more. So let's look um, let's look at chapter twenty two, please. And we will, we will sort more or less end there. And we'll be able to talk some more after. Um, so lots going on in, um, in chapter 22. Um, Jesus heals a man with, with dropsy. This is kind of an abnormal swelling. Uh, heals them on the Sabbath. This is not something you're supposed to do. Again, the Pharisees aren't happy. There's a little dialogue about taking the seat of honor, right? The lower place at the table. Um, who you invite and select as guests. This is very interesting in, in verses 12 to 14. Um, 
Jesus says, okay, so if you're going to host a meal, who, here's who you should not invite. <laughs> and basically, you shouldn't invite your friends, your siblings, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. <laughs> now, that might be the best advice you've ever gotten, at least tonight. Um, but then he goes on to say, here's who you should invite. You should invite those who are poor, those who are crippled, those who are lame, those who are blind. Again, an interesting list hearkening back to Luke chapter 4, right? This is good news for the poor, sight for the blind. Um, and this is about those who don't have a place, those who don't have social standing with you being given it as a free gift. Um, lots that we could say about that. I'm going to have to s skip over because I want to get to the Last Supper. <coughs> so chapter 22, uh, now we're into the, the final stage of it. Um, Jesus now, the, for the first time, isn't just invited to a meal. He's not just a guest. This is He's a host. He's giving instructions. He's presiding. He's, he's gathered his inner circle for this meal. And more than just a farewell meal for his friends, this meal seems to be pointing to something. Um, just prior to this, he has a little teaching about this image of a banquet and there's something of that banquet, a foretaste of that happening right here. He says in verse 15, I will not eat with you again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And then verse 18, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So this coming kingdom is a reference to this messianic banquet. Jesus has been teaching about that, giving parables about that. I've skipped some of this material, so I apologize. Um, Jesus' action of drinking this wine at this particular meal, he says, will be completed, will be fulfilled. I will do it again with you in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So somehow that meal is connected to this coming kingdom, this coming banquet. Um, he takes bread, he gives thanks, he blesses and gives it to them. This is verse 19. This is my body given for you. And then the same, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you in verse 20. Now that language about a covenant in blood is very strange. Um, we only get it one other time in the Bible, and that's in Exodus 24. So I know a lot of you have these very nifty, these are New Testaments, I think. Does anyone have a full Bible who could look up Exodus 24? Or a device. We will we will settle for a a Bible that comes to you from the cloud or something. Exodus what? Twenty four verses six to eleven. Verse six to eleven. Yes, thank you. Okay. Uh, Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Do I keep reading? Mm -hmm. Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself, but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. Still more? That's good there. Okay. So Jesus references the blood of the covenant. 
here in Exodus 24, Moses, this is a, it's a very strange ritual. Let's just be honest. <laughs> Pouring blood in a bowl, dumping some of it on an altar and some on the people. This is a, a blood covenant, a life covenant that's been made. Um, God is making with the people. But then, but then what happens? Did you catch that at the end? Where do they go after this covenant? Where did they go? Yeah, they went up the mountain. They went up Mount Sinai. Right? All the people. <laughs> and it says, they saw God and ate and drank with him. So in Exodus 24, we have a, a theophany, an encounter with God. People eating and drinking with God on Mount Sinai. Um, the, Moses and the elders enter into this uh, God's God's realm, and we get this description. You know, there's blue stones. It's like the sky, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so there's something about the blood of the covenant and this this divine meal that harkens all the way back to the giving of Torah very early on in Exodus 24. Jesus knows this, um, and there's a kind of parallel here between the sacrificial liturgy of Moses and the elders of Israel and Jesus' own actions in this particular meal. Jesus' own blood shed is what will make this new covenant. Um, there's also a reference later to the Son of Man. That is a, a messianic reference from Daniel. We could explore that if you have questions. Um, and then just after this, this amazing meal with all of this reference, just to keep things real and human, a dispute breaks out. Um, I mean, you're communing with God in the flesh who's given you a new covenant what, who do you want to talk? What do you want to talk about? Well, who gets the best seat at this table, after all? Um, so the disciples start to argue, and Jesus replied, "The Gentiles lord over one another, but not among you." And there's this invitation to serve as Jesus has served them. And then, um, and then, and then there's this little bit in verse 29. So who still has a Bible? Verse 29. We're in chapter 22, verse 29. <coughs> Anybody have that? Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Is that one? Hmm. So they've just had this meal with all of this reference to a new covenant in the blood of Jesus hearkening back to this theophany, this encounter of eating and drinking with, with the God of, of Israel, now just Jesus confers on his disciples his kingdom. I mean, this is really remarkable. He confers on these, these guys are idiots. I mean, I say that respectfully, but they're like, I am, I'm one too. Um, but he confers this kingdom on them, entrusts it to their care. This is a kind of kingly ruler at work, giving them a kingdom, um, this is no longer a kingdom that's among you. This is now entrusted to you. Why? Well, Jesus anticipates what may be coming in the story. And if we've read the full story, we know what's, what's coming in the events of Holy Week, right? I am conferring on you a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. So this image of a table set with God, all the way back from this Sinai encounter, all the way forward to what's anticipated in this future age is a central, central image to Jesus' kingdom. 
I want to do just one more brief thing and then we're going to go to questions, which is the, the last real meal, which is on the road to Emmaus. This is familiar perhaps to some of you. It's very familiar to me. I'm part of a community that's named after this story. We spend a lot of time on this and it's a wonderful, wonderful, rich story. So Jesus now is, this is after his death, his resurrection. Uh, most of his followers are terribly discouraged. They're downcast. Jesus is walking along with two of them on a road. Uh, they don't recognize him. And it's not because he had a new haircut, um, but because, as we'll see, their eyes were not yet opened to recognizing him. Um, they're downcast. Um, they have this interaction. Jesus opens the scripture and explains, did you not know the Messiah had to suffer and die in order for this other stuff to, to happen? Like wink, wink, nudge. Um, and then very interestingly, they reach their home. Jesus acts like, I'll just keep going. And they say, no, 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 come in, come in, come in. So again, he was a host. Now he's a guest. And it says when he was at table, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it. Their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. So probably some echoes there, right? He takes bread, he blessed, he broke. What about a couple who are given something to eat and have their eyes opened? Do we know another story where that seems to happen in the Bible? Like, is there a story with a couple who are given perhaps a piece of fruit, right? <laughs> they eat it and their eyes are opened. And what happens? They're banished from the garden, right? Now, after the resurrection... They're given what? Well, they're given bread. They're sharing in bread. And who are they sharing it? Well, they're sharing it with the resurrected Jesus. They don't know it. But in that breaking of bread, it says their eyes are opened. They see, they understand. There's some communion. I mean, this is why we use that language, right? Their eyes are opened and they see Jesus in the breaking of the bread. They recognize him. Um, and then, and then in the final meal story, Jesus reappears in Jerusalem and essentially says, good to see you boys, I'm hungry. Do you have something? And he gives, right? So the, the physicality, the, that, that basic essential nature of the humanness of Jesus. Yes, Jesus, who is more than human, but who is also embodied, even after the resurrection, they give him some broiled fish and he eats it with them. So um, that's where I'll stop. Tons more to say. Um, but let's let's have some interactions, some questions, some comments, quibbles. Clark promised me he would answer all the hard ones. Uh, I feel really good about that. So, well, Clark probably have all the hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we start with the boring stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Well, like what we were talking about at supper there, what kind of confuses me mm. is Jesus eating fish mm. after he's resurrected. Mm -hmm. I've, I've the resurrected Jesus, mm -hmm. you know, new creation yeah. and everything, and he's eating fish. Yeah. Which mm -hmm. to me is not what I would have expected. Mm. I mean, I don't know if there's an answer to that. To what that, would you but, have expected? Well, I would expect that he wouldn't be eating fish. Okay. You know, the, the, you, the, well, in, in new creation, in the, in the new, in, you know, the recreated world, in the new life, and everything, you know, the lion lays, or the wolf's laying with the lamb, and so on and so forth. So I would think that in, in, in new creation, you know, the return of Jesus and everything, 
that we wouldn't be eating other flesh. And yet here's the resurrected Jesus eating flesh. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't have an answer. It's just because I don't think there is an answer. Yeah. I just find it very odd. Yeah. Yeah, in John's version, he cooks it, right? He cooks yeah. it on a beach and invites them to yeah. come and have breakfast. It's one of my favorite yeah. stories. I think where um, he eats fish with them after the resurrection, he's meeting them where they are, the fishermen, largely. Mm -hmm. um, and um, this was the environment. This was the natural thing. It was just, well, life goes on, and um, you've got something ahead of you. Um, they will be aware that there's something different here and it probably was reassuring to them to know that they could just eat what they eat every day mm -hmm. with the risen Jesus. Yeah. That's probably about as good an answer look at that thing. Because I, think, I don't think it's a particularly answerable question. But I have a so everybody was happy except the fish. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. I'm afraid this sounds stupid, but I'd like to know what was the big moral behind all of that? All of what? What you said today. Oh, I'm not sure there's a moral behind it apart from um, how we how we understand Jesus' kingdom. Uh, it's in, it's embodied and it's made present and real with us in the midst of our lives. In the, in the course that I teach, we go on and do a whole other half a semester about, okay, what does it mean to live faithfully in a kind of broken world with a pretty broken food system and interact with that? So there's heaps of questions for us to discern around doing that. Um, but I think we can, I think if we're going to do that as, as Christians, as disciples, we're going to do that differently if we have some sense that it's, it's actually a way of deepening our sense of who God is for us in Jesus and the way that Jesus walked among us. Um, and there's, so there's, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot more about that, I guess that could be said. And I saw that like, um, like you brought out that eating is just a main uh, a thing that everybody does. We have to mm -hmm. do it more than once a day. It's, yeah. thing we do. Mm -hmm. And Jesus has said he's the bread of life. Mm -hmm. Like he is mm -hmm. to be to us mm -hmm. that sustenance mm -hmm. and that craving, mm -hmm. that satisfaction. That mm -hmm. It's quite, um, and just that picture of him in the manger, I'd never got that mm -hmm. before. But yeah. Yeah, the final, um, where we sort of close in this course that I do, there's a, a lecture called Eating Eucharistically. And the idea is, how could we approach every meal and every table with the kind of uh, reverence that we approach the Lord's table? Um, is there some way in which our communing with God in bread and wine also means that in all of our eating and dining, we are in some sense doing that as well? Yeah. For a lot of the early church, it was a, it was a full meal. It wasn't. A, it was certainly not a wafer. Good God. Um, but it was at least a full, you know, a full meal, and there was some, there was something particular about these. There's a whole tradition too. There's an interesting book looking at early early practices because there were bread and wine. There was fish was used uh, as an element in some traditions. Um, salt was used. So there's some some divergence there, but bread and wine are the dominant by far. Um, so yeah, for me, it is really a, a way of saying, okay, my life with God isn't lived on some other 
space or some other plane. It's actually right here. It's right now. It's it's fingers and toes and the whole like that's this is the time and place we have with which to experience the communion with God. Um, And it takes faith to say God is present, right? God is present in this hidden to be sure, but but present. So to me, there's a whole opening up of Oh, okay. It's not. It's not about an, an otherworldly piety. It's about really rethinking life in this world, in light of what we see in this story of Jesus. Yeah. I would. I would add to. That. Just sorry. I. I, I want to add to that, and also in response to Vince, because I. I mean, I actually had the same question as you, Vince. So it was a very. We're both so in the same. We're in the same boat. <laughs> we're in the same boat. Uh, but. You know, but as I think about the overall trajectory, and I really appreciate how you led us through the Gospel of Luke and just mm-hmm. show us how much food is there. Um, makes me realize why, why I get hungry when I read the Bible. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but the idea is that, you know, you began with saying that food is beyond just statistical nutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, it's beyond just fuel. It's even mm-hmm. beyond just sustenance. Mm-hmm. But that there's something that we've lost the the miracle of what food is mm-hmm. and that you said that it becomes a part of us mm-hmm. and that as i take away is that through the gospel of luke is that god is meeting us not only in food but that's how he relates to us mm-hmm. he relates to us as a, as a creator mm-hmm. he's made all things but he also is he's meeting us there in redemption he says i offer you salvation i offer you forgiveness through food Mm-hmm. And and somehow as we ingest that, that we participate in His redemption and His forgiveness, and so that's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that answer. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. So my comment was um, actually I like the two we become what we eat. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, consume, but my it wasn't so much a question as a as a um, speaking in support of, I suppose, but you, you talked about the Lord's Prayer and the daily bread, mm-hmm. and I think uh, we need to, and, and you did this, balance the spiritual spiritualization of that, mm-hmm. uh, and, and even thinking of it as the Word, which I concur with 100%. At the same time, if you spend time around hungry people, truly mm-hmm. hungry people, you realize that daily bread is very physical. It's mm-hmm. the physicality when we say Lord's Prayer, you know, please provide us with mm-hmm. daily bread. Sometimes it's a glossed over, you know, mm-hmm. I believe a reasonable assumption that we'll probably have daily bread mm-hmm. today and probably tomorrow. But for folks who don't, um, it's different. Yeah. So, um, and I've been called out on that at times and and spent some time with some poor people who, who named that for me, and I think it's really good that mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. provided that balance. And good for us is Christians to hold the two tensions yeah. together and know that it's uh, they're both important and they're both part of yeah. what we're talking about. That's good. Yeah, and just, I, I am curious to know if you have any practical suggestions. I know this is like a, a whole lecture in itself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how, how we can be mindful of these things when we come to a meal, especially, you know, at Libri we have like three hours to cook a meal every day. Yeah. So that's a luxury that most people don't have. Yeah. I do remember being in university and, you know, getting home, at whatever, I was working and going to school and getting home at like seven o'clock and you only yeah. have, you're so hungry and you only have, yeah. you know, it does become like fuel. So are there, yeah, what, what can we realistically do in this age to help us be more mindful? Yeah. 
Yeah, so I mean, <clears throat> what I would probably want to do is give you some framework for thinking about that and then honestly say w what sort of invitation are you discerning in that? So um, the framework I would offer would be trying to think again in terms of um, our, our, our redemption, our salvation, our discipleship is about making us fully human. So while I, I'm deeply sympathetic, I have three kids and like too many part-time jobs and like we're running, so we're juggling that. Um, so I'm, I'm deeply sympathetic to that. And I think there's something about that juggle that is not fully human, like the very pace of that. So that can work for a season. And so I think that's why I'm, I'm sympathetic with students. Like you have a season as students, I get that. But I don't know that we can live a fully human life our whole life with that. So... So that's where I do think there's a real there's a real discerning, um, and then the other thing I think to say is, do can we see all of those aspects of our life as part of our discipleship? So the way that we engage the food system, the the food that we eat, where it's grown, who we eat with, that all of that is is part of our discipleship, and not in a this is the danger of the course I teach is that um, students feel. I think inherently like they've failed at it because they're not doing it perfectly. Well, <laughs> welcome to being <laughs> not so fully human. Like we just, we do that imperfectly. And so the purchases that we make and the ways that we try, like that's not, we're not going to do that with perfection, but is there some invitation to begin to see that as part of a part of living out our calling, our discipleship in this time and place? That's where I would start. Um, I mean, the, I mentioned I, a part of this Emmaus community. One of the vows that we take is to simplicity. And I just think for folks who have grown up with uh, some degree of wealth or access or, or privilege, um, having some sense that part of our discipleship needs to be a kind of downward mobility, a kind of giving up, is, is an invitation that I feel very deeply. Um, Lon, your comment about this about rich and, and poor and needing daily bread. There's a Catholic theologian called Bill Kavanaugh who's written an amazing book on, on consumerism. And his point is that we tend to say that consumerism is about having unhealthy attachments, like we're attached to all these things. Mm -hmm. But he says actually increasingly for us um, privileged type folks, what we have is an unhealthy detachment from things. Mm -hmm. So it's the very fact that we're not related to our to our food, to our neighbors, to our to all of this, that's that's a disorientation. So how do we cultivate a healthier attachment to that? Not an unhealthy attachment, not a we're not gonna make an idol of our plates, but but some healthy bond and relationship to this as part of our those would be some of the like big goalposts that I would lay out. And then I really would say what what would you discern by the spirit as an invitation to start in that? Um, and if you're in a season where gosh, I'd love to sit down and eat meals, and I just, there's no way to do that. Then that's a larger life discernment, I think, for us. So. Um, I, just adding to your question, or uh, adding to the answer, possibly, yeah. something I was thinking about, not really sure where it fits in, but, um, so your question was about, like, time to prepare, and, a student doesn't have the time and a lot of us don't have the time. Money too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um but it seems like in a lot of the stories 
that you were talking about. It wasn't just like, are they preparing the food from scratch and how long mm-hmm. are they spending preparing the food without <laughs> sharing it? Mm-hmm. So even if we don't have very much time, mm-hmm. or if it's like a can of beans, <laughs> like you can still include your neighbor in that mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. share what you have. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I think that we're not supposed to, isn't the gospel of Luke isn't calling us to become foodies mm-hmm. and they spend lots of money on um, all of the best ingredients and mm-hmm. go and research the most authentic way to make it. Mm-hmm. I think it's just simplicity and sharing. Sure. Yeah, that's helpful. I think too, and I should practice what I preach, but um, we have to, when we're super busy, we have to be thoughtful about what we actually give up. I remember being challenged by the principal of the theological college I went to. All us students were about, you know, you're coming up to the end of the term and you're super busy and you're writing essays and you're doing all this. And in his case, it was about worship. And mm-hmm. he said, that's the very time you must come to worship <laughs> because when, when do you need it more than mm-hmm. when you're going through crazy, busy, stressful stuff. And so I'm just connecting what he said to what you've mm-hmm. taught us tonight, mm-hmm. that maybe in busyness, and I respect being busy, I understand it, uh, maybe taking just a little more time and just a little more thoughtfulness and a little more, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I'm trying to learn this. This is fairly new to me, mm. so I appreciate the teaching. Difficult to think of it being too spiritual thing, you know. I've never ever worried about whether I was going to have food mm-hmm. yeah. in my life. It's never even, yeah. it's not even a consideration, you know. Um, and I know a huge chunk of the world doesn't live like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, I think it's hard to make mm-hmm. make it a spiritual thing. You know? Yeah, mm-hmm. just take it for granted. Yeah. And on the same note, I wonder if we could almost take for granted that we'll ever miss God spiritually too, right? Like, just well, God is always mm-hmm. there. That sometimes we don't hunger for Him daily either to ask even for Him. Yeah. What do you? <coughs> What do you say, though, to the person who, one of my dear friends, has like struggled with anorexia mm-hmm. like her whole life? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know this is also definitely opening up a lot of other conversations, mm-hmm. so I understand that. But I just can't help thinking, like, what about when your reaction is not, oh, the kingdom of God is like a banquet, mm-hmm. is actually your response is horror. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you, and, and, and maybe that's like there's healing that happens, but also on a chemical level, maybe that is an issue for you your whole life. And mm-hmm. so, like, the language we use, like, what does it look like to graciously invite someone into this picture of a banquet mm-hmm. that is full of abundance, mm-hmm. but that also is grounded in this language of food? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's a great question. I think on the language side, I would just say I'm grateful that we have a lot of metaphors, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I think pastorally, we need to try and use those in a way that's appropriate. Um, I do hold out hope for, for some healing from that. Um, but I think how that comes, um, it's gonna, yeah, it's a long, that's a long journey and a lot of fits and starts. Um, I had a student write a paper actually about her, um, experience with, with this. She had had a a struggle with, with an eating disorder for over 10 years and eventually got to a point where um, 
she her recovery was such that the person she was working with guiding her through it was encouraging her could you like could you start to see and smell food as good again could you think of baking bread in a positive way again and this so this is 10 years into recovery but she got to a point where she started to bake bread and try to do that and there was some real some deeply healing encounter there and actually she wrote poems about this and the image of Jesus's bread um, for the paper and it was the most some of the most stunning stuff I've ever read so I, I do believe that's possible <laughs> but I think part of the question is is an important note to us of um, our relationship to our to our bodies to our to our desires like all of that is um, all of that is under a weight right that we all experience differently and how that's going to shape the way that we respond to this is, is an important question I think yeah. I never quite thought of it until you mentioned it and you mm. responded as that. Um, I thought about it and never really articulated it, and y'all just helped me do that. And a lot of people who come to Labrie have questions, theological questions, life questions, but they're often hit by something that they have not thought to ask. Mm. And there's so many questions around food. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about mm. food. <laughs> right. Um, and. It's just interesting how people relate to the plate Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how people relate to sitting around a table and having Mm -hmm. an hour and a half this long conversation around food and how much food occupies our time. Just like Liz was saying, we have the privilege of having three hours to cook or the obligation of three hours to cook. Um, And if you're Liz, you're digging holes and, you know baking salmon and stuff. But, um, we just opened cans of soup and stuff. But but the idea is that in relation to this question is that, like you said, I, I wouldn't dare, I mean, there's, there is physiological, psychological changes that goes through a person's body when they mm-hmm. start relating to food with, uh, in, a, in a disordered way. Or an unhealthy way for them uh, and that runs very deep but I do believe that we can't just read a book and say okay I just need to imagine food differently but we just it seems that food is particular at Labrie it's not it's a focal point but there's so much that happens around the table mm-hmm. yeah. and that we bring to the table and that we take from the table that that relationship people who have come to Labrie with anorexia, bulimia, orthorexia, which is a new term of food righteousness. Um, People who try to find their justification by what they eat. Uh, And they're challenged by that plate. But as they're in discussion, as they're in relationship around food, there's something that starts changing. Because at the very beginning you said it's political, social, economic, so on and so on. So I'm just reflecting that we see that as the same, I've never really been able to articulate that, but it's been helpful to tell me. Clark, can you just say that word again? Orthorexia. Orthorexia. Yeah, and I think think one thing I've observed about Labrie over the years too is just that like when food happens in that relational way where it's like, there's some people who have this real sense of entitlement, but for the most part, people, yeah, it seems that that you know the person who's making the food for you, um, and you sit down together with them, it really changes people's attitude mm-hmm. towards food, and it's not mm-hmm. just like this like individual experience that we have when yeah. we eat out, that we're just like, okay, I, everything's going to be my way, and 
you feel so disconnected from mm -hmm. it. But yeah, it's much more relational. And we have a big garden, and I've seen a lot of students really be changed. Like one of the most profound parts of their experience here mm -hmm. often is working in the garden, because mm -hmm. that's so rare. Like we had a Colombian student earlier this term who had never, never gotten his hands in the soil before, mm -hmm. and he was like, "Oh, I want to go to this gardening class down the road that I saw." <laughs> <laughs> like, so, so yeah. excited, and um, yeah. And that's like a real privilege that we can do that, but it's just yeah. like, can be very profound just to grow a plant. <laughs> yeah, that's great. What's your intake about people that went their celebration day, like Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. and instead of staying home and cooking, people go to restaurants? What do you think about that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm going to go with no on putting to death anybody. Um, lots of compassion. Yeah, I've got a really good friend who's a vegetarian. He's been for the bulk of his life, 40 odd years. And if you, if he was invited to your house and you made him that, like if you only had that pot of chicken soup, he'd eat it. Because you invited him to his house, and it's a way of honoring your invitation. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think I have I have strong views about food and food sourcing, and I think these are important ethical questions for us. Um, but they're important in the context of the relationships that we live. So I think there's there's probably a thousand reasons for going out to dinner um, on a, on a celebration meal. Um, so I'm not gonna sit and 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 with that it might, it might be more peaceful than having it with your family um, maybe in a lot of cases actually um, so yeah I just think I I really do like I just I think we have to try and approach all of this with some sense of compassion and grace for the mess of our lives but that but but that is because we're we're actually held in this in this amazing story of what Jesus has done right I don't invite the people to the meal that I'm supposed to um, and Yet Jesus invites me, <laughs> right? So the whole the whole thing is just a response to the fact that we've been included in the meal, that we get to sit and have that banquet. So that's where I just think we we have to we have to give lots of room for people to discern how to respond to this in in ways that fit their context. Because um, yeah, the self righteousness and self justification in these topics is just is over the top. Yeah. But I've seen I've seen a similar thing at Arasha, this community I was a part of. We we do cook as well and um, have folks come to spend time with us. And a lot of science folks, a lot of scientist types come, and they it's like, what are you wasting your time for? This is <laughs> so much time to this meal, you know. But almost to a person at the end of their time, they'll say, oh, that was like the most fun thing. I can't believe you gave me that time. Mm -hmm. So there is something. This is why I think the language of making us more fully human is is helpful. That there is something in that uh, um, that's not a you're not a it's not like you're in or you're out. It's that you're moving more deeply in, right? You're you're allowing that full experience before God. So, yeah. This yeah. may sound a bit more like a criticism, but right? I think like I've been very disillusioned mm. with like the idea of like ethical sourcing for your mm -hmm. food or like food packaging or trying to live zero waste or mm -hmm. not travel as much. Like it seems 
like it kind of seems a bit like a bias that we can say like oh if you take time to cook meals mm -hmm. and if it's all ethical and organic or like sourced locally then mm -hmm. we're more fully human right and like because i think when it comes down to it like we are kind of governed by grocery stores mm -hmm. and like we can't really live the ways like our ancestors lived where we had our own farms mm -hmm. like we we don't do that anymore so i don't really know like what are we sort of advocating for like are you kind of leaning towards like an anarchist model of like everyone needs like reject society and and like go and produce their own food because that's not really like feasible for everyone and it's also only really like you know two percent of the world's population who can access like organic food mm -hmm. like it's just not um it's like you have to be wealthy to do that right mm -hmm. yeah. yeah no i mean those are all I think those are all very real uh, and important questions and challenges. Um, I don't think I would advocate anarchism, at least while this recorder is on, but um, <laughs> we can talk later. Um, <laughs> no, I do. So, so the mantra I would give is from, um, is from Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, who talked about building a new society in the shell of the old. So... Um, the, the, only, the only pushback I would have for your comments is just to say that the current food system is not sustainable. So while it's certainly true that um, we can't just adapt it quickly, um, there's some pretty fundamental problems in the way that the food system's operating. Um, and not just for wealthy white people that want to eat better, but for the whole world. So in that sense, I think there's a whole... There's a whole variety of options of what to do. I think it'd be great for some people to say, yeah, we're going to opt out and we're going to create our own food network and seek to actually supply the needs of our community. Um, but again, how you do that and why you do that, I think are deeply, like, deeply important questions and ones where for us, if we're following the way of Jesus, we suddenly have this, this whole story to live into, to do that differently. Um, another person I've been inspired by is Clarence Jordan, who founded Koinonia Farm. Mm -hmm in Georgia in the 40s, probably the first interracial farm, so black and white people farming together. Um, he, for in, in gratitude for that, he had his barns burnt down, uh, his windows shot out by the KKK. Um, I mean, his life was under threat for, for a long time. And he referred to what they were doing as a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. So I don't think he was under the illusion that by starting his project, he was going to end... <laughs> the massive um, racism problem, but he couldn't not see that something in, I mean, back to what I read from Paul in Galatians, there's no longer uh, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. For him, it's there's no longer black and white. Actually, we have to do this together. So how, how, how was he called to do that? How are each of us called? I think is going to be different. Um, and I think our social location matters. So the fact that some of us are able to make a certain set of choices that others can't make I don't think that inherently disqualifies those choices, but I think we have to make them with a self-understanding of where of our own social location, if that makes sense. And ideally, all of us are moving on a downwardly mobile path. So there's more I could say about that if you want. But, mm. yeah. I'm interested in your monastic community. Yeah. Hearing more about that. Great. Yeah. Okay. We can chat about that. Okay. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, maybe after. I'm not sure the whole room wants to hear about that as all, but I'd love to talk about it. Two votes. Sorry? Why don't you take a vote? Take a vote? You guys have do votes here? <laughs> I'd like to hear about it. Yeah, You'd like to hear about it? Okay, so I will answer it. Um, you're welcome. So the um, yeah, so the Emmaus community is a new monastic community in Victoria. Um, it's about it's been around for about five years. There was a community gathered before that called Community of Reconciliation, um, whose sense of call was sort of around. They use the language of contemplation and action, and I think it's fair to say the way I've heard it summarized is that they did a lot of contemplating and they didn't get on too much acting. Um, and there was a kind of, I don't mean that too disrespectfully, I just like to be flippant. Um, and there was a change in who, in the leadership there. Um, and so it went through a re sort of renewing its vision process. And so the Emmaus community was, was born. It's a, it's a shared ministry of the Anglican and United churches. Um, meaning we do have some oversight. It's more than just, couple of people sort of out doing their thing. Um, so we have, in the Anglican uh, case, a, a bishop that we report to and then a, a moderator in the United Church side. Um, and we live according to a rule of life. There's three three core vows that we take, which are uh, prayer. That's the first vow. Everything we do is rooted in a life of prayer. Uh, simplicity and presence. And so that presence is in, in our neighborhood in Victoria, in the various communities we live in, we work. It's small. There's probably eight or ten covenanted members. So we take vows. There's a there's a novice program. So people who are interested will be part of a formation that goes about eight months, and then a time of discerning: is this something I feel called to live out with others? We don't all live together. There is one house with some folks living together in a small um, hospitality space that the community hosts in the basement of that house. So there's a little sort of room chapel that we pray in. We pray five mornings a week and we pray two, one or two evening offices. It varies a bit seasonally. And then on Sunday, we have a, um, a kind of worshiping community called the Abbey Church, which grew out of the tradition of monasteries having an abbey where they would gather and have their Eucharist and the doors are open. If you want to go join the monks, you can join. And so that happens four o'clock on Sundays, um, yeah, so my wife Roxy and I went through the novice program together, um, and I first read the Rule of Life and thought, I, like, I feel like I've been trying to write this for the last ten years, but you just wrote it better, and here's some people trying to do it. This is great. Um, so once once you've gone through the novice process, once a year, the community goes on retreat and discerns and basically writes based on those three vows, writes, okay, for this coming year, here's how I've discerned a deeper commitment to simplicity. Here's what that's going to look like in this year. And then we share that with each other, and there's a kind of mutual encouragement and accountability. So it's not a, like, we're all moving in and sharing toothbrushes. Um, and it's not a, like, you know, you jerk, we saw how much you spent on that vacation. It's much more of a, hey, you said you were going to make a commitment to sort of spend less time on this thing. How are you doing? And what's that going? How's that going? Or um, we know that you're having trouble <laughs> um, getting to morning prayer because you've got three kids that you got to kick out of the house at the same time. But how's that going to work? You know, how, how are you living into a commitment to daily office prayer when you're not here with us? So 
So that's a little bit about it. Happy to share more. Yeah. Where is it located? It's in sort of roughly in Fernwood in Victoria. Yeah. Yeah. So happy to share. And it's Emmaus community. It's easily to be found online. Lots of things there. And yeah. Sorry, when you sign up for that, whatever you said, a commitment or covenanted members, like how long are you signing up for? So we take vows for one or five years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Initially, you only do for one. So it gives you, again, to go next year, go on the retreat, pray, discern. We also have companion uh, members, which is sort of based on the monastic tradition of having uh, oblates, who aren't monks, but they are nonetheless drawn to the kind of charism of the community and committed to living that way. So we have, I don't know, maybe half a dozen folks. So there's someone in Campbell River and a few others who say, I'm, I'm committed to living this in my context, but I'm not... I'm not with you or I'm not engaged in a embodied way that the rest of you are trying to be. Yeah. So it's not perfect um, by any means. And it's not sort of the bee's knees. It is, it's one way I think of trying to say, how do we live, how do we live differently and, pro- and provide some context to do that with others? Yeah. How is that shaped around food? Yeah. So we do, um, we do open meals uh, a couple times a month for the neighborhood. Um, and then it's, so it's the community, like our covenant and members, we eat uh, once a week together. And then obviously we have a Sunday Eucharist that we have, but then we have an open meal for the neighborhood. We also host a couple of meals at um, the Mustard Seed. So yeah, food, is, food gets tucked into a lot of it one way or another. Yeah. We've talked about... We've talked about kind of doing a, a food buying club, you know, and we just, yeah, it's still, it's still young. So there's lots of, lots of discerning how it's all going to go. And we make beer. And we make beer. To support them. I don't. Like an Abbey. Yes, right. We do have a, we do have a beverage collective. So there's a beer making enterprise, which has been, has been held back from its full potential, but one day (laughs) we hope for that to grow. And um, I don't, I don't drink, but there's a lovely beer they make, and uh, they tell me, and um, and then someone makes tinctures and other little interesting things. So, yeah, so it'd be interesting to see where it all goes. So, yeah. Um, so the food thing, is it mainly just in Luke that you've seen this, or is it in studies in other gospels that you see? Oh, I think it's unavoidable in all of them. It's just. Luke has um, so many commentators see, I mean, that's why I gave you the sheet and kind of use different fonts and things. To, so this is like part of the structure of what's happening in the way that the story is told, right? So yeah, you certainly have um, accounts of that. Um, I mean, you think of the I am statements in John and I am the bread of life. I mean, rich, deep uh, theology around that. Um, this is just a, a handy way of trying to get into the life of Jesus in a slightly different, with a slightly different angle. Yeah. Does Arosha have a website that we could yeah. find out more? Yeah. Arosha does. Yeah. Good website. Arosha.ca. Okay. Yeah. So they, yeah. So they've been in Canada for about 15 years. We've been, we've existed for since 1983, and we're in about 20 countries around the world. It started in Portugal. Um, it's a long story how they ended up there. Um, but there are groups of Christians who feel very committed to 
honoring God through the way we care for creation. The projects look very different in different places. Um, so in Canada, there's a project outside Vancouver, one in Hamilton, and one outside Winnipeg. Um, and around the world, they're uh, they're va- they're just vastly different. They do share with Labrie um, that sort of commitment to um, to table time, really, and to meal time. Almost all of them do. But how they sort of think practically about caring for creation. The project in India, for example, they found that. Um, farmers were planting these fields and then they were being trampled by elephants. Mm-hmm. So the natural solution is to just shoot all the elephants, um, <laughs> which is terrible. So there are all these elaborate technological ways of trying to deal with elephants. And somebody came up with a solution where you take old rope, soak it in big buckets of old used motor oil, and then as it comes out, they sprinkle it with um, a form of cayenne pepper and then hang this up like an electrical fence, but when the elephants rub against it, the can is enough that it deters them. So you have like thousands of dollars worth of farmer's crops protected by old ropes and motor oil. So it's it's often those, I love that story because that feels like an Arasha thing. Like we just figured out this like total- MacGyver. Yeah, total MacGyver, <laughs> low budget. It was like, we got a grant for $5,000 and we solved this problem, you know, whatever. So lots of interesting things happening. Um, and my work with that is really particularly to try and work with seminaries and, and churches to think about these sorts of questions. And my, my time in that role is, is now very constrained by my other work, but it's still something that's close to my heart. So, yeah. How would you define a simpler life, and, and why is that necessarily better? A simpler life is way more complicated, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I guess I would look at a simpler life would, would be to try and, um, to try and in some ongoing way and imperfectly, um, try and hold the main things as the main things. Um, there's just so much of, so much of life to me and my experience is just, it, it drives one to a kind of frenetic pace. That, that my lived experience is that feels less human. I'm a worse parent. I'm a worse husband. I'm way, like, it just, it just distracts from all the things that I feel called to. So simpler life is saying, how do I actually seek some freedom? So our vow of simplicity is really about how do I make myself free to respond to the leadings of the Holy Spirit? Well, actually, yeah, my relationship to technology has a lot to do with that, right? My, like my daily rhythm of when I wake and when I rest, all of that can feed into um, trying to cultivate a life that can respond to, to God. Um, again, I mean, I feel like a broken record, but I do want to, I want to hold that loosely in the sense of how you might discern that in your season of life and in your family could look very different than how I discern it in mine. And I'm, I think that's just the, or I don't think there's escaping that. So maybe God calls us to be busy. Sure. Yeah. I I mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think so. I think I would busy for what end and in what sort of framework and in what season. And I just think a lot of what passes for our busyness, we might justify it as God's call, but I'm not I would want to sit really heavily with that. Yeah. That's 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 my that's my experience. Um Yeah, and the in the invitation to live to live more simply isn't I, I joke about it being more complicated because it does mean actually looking 
looking at the, the drives that we have and the desires, like looking at the things that, that motivate us and trying to sift those a bit with, with God's help. So It's really interesting when you say that. I have a friend who we talk to each other about food because mm. of trying to eat less and mm. healthy. And one of the things that he says to me is, every choice matters. And as you were talking about simplifying your life, it's the same. I think every choice you make matters. So different lifestyles, different uh, uh, applications. But we sort of go there and, mm. and, and include God in the choice making yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well I just want to take the idea of a simpler life to, just to get out of things that maybe you should be doing. Sure. If, you know, I mean. Yeah. I don't know how you discern that. But. Yeah. Um, I just want to thank you. Mm-hmm. We're going to call it. Uh, but I want to thank you just for leading us through the Gospel of Luke, bringing out these okay. beastal images. Mm. And um, you've left us with a lot of fruit and also a lot of questions. Okay. And so, food another food fight. Uh-huh. <laughs> so good. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.